Buenas. Buenas. Welcome back to Film Posers for Boricuas Ranting, Raving, and Reviewing Cinema. Today, we are going to be doing our third film craft episode. And given the timing, it only felt right to talk about slasher films. And this episode will be moderated by me, the resident slasher film fan, Juan Mojica. Yes, the slasher genre is coming back and in a very big way. By the time this episode is uploaded, Halloween Kills will be in theaters and on Peacock with a premium subscription. The first four episodes of I Know What You Did Last Summer will be on Amazon Prime Video. The first episode of the new Chucky series will be on Hulu. And I will still be gushing over the first trailer and posters for the upcoming Scream reboot. It's a great time to be a slasher fan. And since the genre is making a comeback, I thought it would be great to have an episode dedicated to how to make a great slasher film. Many of our listeners are writers themselves, and if you want to write a slasher film or have already written one, I thought it would be great to make some tips to make sure you have them included. Now, the posers have watched specific clips of the films that I felt are great examples of successful slasher film elements that should be included. So without further ado, let's get into it. Our first topic will be main character development. Now, when you're outlining your characters, you need to create dimension. And with slasher films, you have the typical archetypes. You have Jock, you have the promiscuous female, the scholar. Think Randy from Scream, who is conscious of the rules of surviving a horror film. The fool, which can also be substituted as the stoner. And the final girl. Now, the archetypes are a great way to visualize what elements you want to incorporate in your story. But with that also comes the question a writer must ask themselves. Do I want to keep the traditional characters who follow these archetypes and just add layers to their personalities? Or do I want to create commentary about these archetypes? Now, both are great choices if you handle it correctly. You know, don't go cheesy. Make them feel real. We've seen those kind of slasher films where the characters You can tell what are archetypes and you can tell that there's really not much beneath the surface and they're just potential slayings for the killer. I think we've all seen those kind of films before, right? Yes. Well, there are good slasher films. I think the majority just follow the same tropes and don't do anything new with it. And that's why the slasher film kind of has like a bad reputation nowadays because it's repetitive. Completely agree. I think after a while, with so many successful films, it's hard not to seem like a carbon copy ripoff of one of those other successful films. It becomes harder to bring something new, and you can't help but want to pay homage to the ones that pay the way. No, yeah, of course you want to pay. Come on. you. There's just... And also, there's only so many things you can do. Like, I feel that every single film falls into a certain kind of trope nowadays. But what makes it different is how you work with it, how you give it your own voice, how you spice it up, if you will. But, you know, paying homage to something isn't wrong. But being a carbon copy of an iconic piece of cinema, that's where you need to reevaluate. I think that that's where you need to reevaluate. Because, you know, try to be original. Try to give your own twist to things. Just because, yes, something works. But if you keep doing it, then it kind of loses that 
you know, what made it special the first time. Yeah, I agree with Galina on this one because it also feels that um, slasher films these days, there's a certain homage to it. However, sometimes they go above the line that is it really homage or it's just trying to do the exact same thing. And that's why I feel that these days they're trying, when it comes to like, these slasher films that are so iconic, they're doing these reboots or, you know, bringing it up again. Because if we talk about slasher films, we talk about the iconic ones. And these days, people don't seem to, like, bring anything new to the table. So they just bring back the old ones. Exactly. Just look at look at what's going on right now. The slasher films that people are people are most excited about are sequels of iconic slasher films. See how bad the genre is? That those are like what are keeping people going. I know that's right. I'm going through it right now with that trailer. Exactly. And again, there's nothing wrong with being excited about them. Yeah. Again, like the Scream trailer was really good. Yeah, I'm excited for that movie, and I'm still very mad at Juan for making me very invested in Dewey and Gale, despite the <laughs> fact that I have a feeling that Dewey's going to die. I'm still salty about it. I, you know I what? I until Juan mentioned it. I was like, what? No! And I hate it because... Oh! No, please. Why did you do this to me, Juan? I do it out of love. You know, Scream's my favorite franchise. Anyone I know who hasn't seen this fil- these films, I automatically make it my mission to make them watch these films. And you know what? I didn't think you were going to like it, Gabriela. I'll be quite honest. And when you told me you were so invested, I'm like, whoa. so invested. Oh, in it. Specifically in those two. Like, and I was all, Randy died. And I was like, motherfuck, they almost killed Dewey. <laughs> There's room for all the emotions. <laughs> I love that and I kept talking about Randy dying. I was just here, way too invested in Randy doing was the one with the common sense, guys. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that his whole thing was that he had common sense, and then he still got killed. That's why they switched things up, and it's a great timing from both of you that you brought up Scream, because my next point is. What can be great about a slasher film is in a movie like Scream, you get attached to these characters because they feel like real people you would know. Adding that layer of reality makes them more believable rather than the cringy, cringeworthy characters you hope get the acts that we were just talking about. Now, if you want to create commentary on the archetypes, a great slasher film that came out a while ago but is still good, in my opinion, is The Cabin in the Woods. Once you analyze the characters and their actions, you see they're more than their archetypes. You can tell who fits where, but you also know they're doing their best to stray away from the norm. And if they don't, it's because it's a satire. They're definitely providing commentary on that. Yeah, but that's different. As you said, it. it's mm-hmm. a satire of the genre. So obviously it falling into all of those tropes. That was the point of the film. And yeah. I think exactly. that's its strength they, because it's very aware of what it is, especially at the end where they unleash like mm-hmm. every single trope imaginable in, in not only slasher but also horror. Also, spoiler alert, we forgot to mention that. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen some of these films. We're sorry, yeah. but we have to get into the details. Yeah. But Gabriela, you're absolutely right. That's exactly why I bring that movie up. That film did something different instead of just going 
you're this, you're that, stab, stab, stab. You're right. It does bring all the tropes, but it's because it's criticizing it. Mm-hmm. Anna, you had a great point to bring up. Yeah. Um, What I was going to say is one of the reasons that we also like love Calvin in the Woods is because it's so self-aware that it relates to us, the audience, because we are seeing, like, we know what they're seeing. We know what's going to happen to them. Because the movie is so self-aware, I think that's one of the reasons that us as the audience enjoy it. Because, again, slasher. when it comes to those slasher films and, you know, the archetypes, we already know what's going to happen to them because there's already, you know, a chemistry and a, like a storyline, what's going to happen between those characters. So being that self-aware just makes it more enjoyable to the audience that's why that movie is a a cult favorite now because that's what a lot of people like about it how it criticizes your genre and it also ended up being something completely new too it's definitely a very unique film absolutely so if you want to avoid archetypes that's a great film to check out we're going to move on to our next point which is a final girl is a must in your slasher film. Now, this trope is obviously something very common in horror films, and some of the most iconic women in these films are still beloved today. Laurie Strode, Sidney Prescott, they're the most well-known. You also even have brought into these conversations Ellen Ripley, Nancy Thompson from A Nightmare on Elm Street. These women are some of the more recognizable names because... You not only remember who they are, you remember their actions. You get to know them. You get to fall in love with them. You get to root for them. Now, normally, they're meant to have experienced something in their past that traumatized them. They're usually meant to be virgins and are left for the end to have a final showdown against the killer and are usually the ones who survive to tell the story of what happened to everyone else. Now, fun fact, this term was coined in the book Men, Women, and Chainsaws, Gender in the Modern Horror Film by Carol J. Clover. I highly recommend this read if you want to write slasher films. I myself own it. I used it for a couple of papers in university. It is a great read, and it really gives you a lot of insight into the tropes and what you can do with the slasher film. So... While a final girl is normally all the elements I previously mentioned, in this modern world, you can play with a couple of these concepts. For example, the element of virginity, I'll be honest, I don't think it's a must anymore. You can have a pure... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Virginity is a social construct. Amen. Amen, Gabriela. Because you can have a pure main character without having to make them a virgin. In this day and age of sexual liberation, you can technically make your character conscious of sexual exploration, not through word of mouth, but perhaps maybe one or two experiences. Purity doesn't even need to be attributed to sexuality. Like Purity can be just someone who has never seen violence in their entire life. Exactly. Someone who is sheltered, you know, who has who who has, you know, lived in a bubble their entire life and and have never experienced the realities of the world that could be argued to be considered pure but really who is pure again that's like a whole different argument maybe you can say that your character can be just innocent in the sense that they've never even heard a fly in their entire lives and then suddenly they find themselves in this position that's you know 
violence and death and seeing everyone that they love die so yeah my favorite example is ready or not yeah exactly yep thank you perfect example i was also gonna mention with the example gabriela just brought up look at fear street part two the main the big sister was someone who is exactly what you said innocent has never heard a fly is the archetype of purity and Mm -hmm you didn't need to bring up virginity mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. convince everyone one that is your final girl and t- or supposed to be and that two she marks all the checkbox of what is supposed to be a final girl yeah and that's why i also like um sydney prescott's the final girl because she is the one that breaks the mold in the final girl it has to be a virgin how can we forget billy mentioning that to her when mm-hmm. Sydney says fuck you and he says no 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 we already played that game and you lost also the virginity element is almost always expected so you have to switch things up by eliminating it you keep the audience on your toes that way and like I said with Fear Street Part 2 spoiler again your final girl doesn't even have to be the main character it can be the sister it can be the best friend another argument that is being made is with I Know What You Did Last Summer some people feel Sarah Michelle Gellar's Helen would have made a better final girl over Jennifer Love Hewitt's Julie. I personally subscribe to that opinion. I love Sarah Michelle Gellar's interpretation. Not said in like Jennifer Love Hewitt's. I think she's great. It's iconic. But sometimes you have to play with that element of who is your final girl and how much impact do you want to create with that character. Yeah. Is she the one with the pageant? That's right. She's the one with the pageant. Yeah. So I. It is interesting. Yeah. I. Okay. I subscribe to that because, again, she is the archetype that she is in the pageant. She's the blonde chick, and we see her getting chased down by the killer. How, however, she outsmarts the killer various times in her scene, which is something that we don't see a lot in that archetype with the blonde chick in a sense she could potentially have been the final girl because we don't normally see that how the villain gets outsmarted you're absolutely right it's exactly why i sent you Mm -hmm. everyone here to watch that clip of her chase scene which we're gonna get to later on but i'm so glad you subscribed to that theory too love to see it i have yet to see that one so really well guess what great segue you can check that out on Peacock. <laughs> Available now for this Halloween season. We're going to continue off by closing this section of Final Girl. Remember, your character can't be 100% perfect. A few flaws will further them along and help them grow. A bad decision can also progress your story. But if you don't have real characters with dimension, your audience roots for the killer. And unless that's the point of your film, you know, if you're doing a Peeping Tom 1960, which is the movie where it's one of the first films to put the audience in the killer's POV, your script can be written off. And we don't want that. We want your scripts to be as strong as possible. That's why we make these episodes. That's why, for example, you had Josie's rom-com episode. I know that has helped a lot of people. We want your scripts to be the best quality they can be. And that's what we're here for. Next up. The character that I feel needs the most questioning. And that's your killer. There are lots of questions you need to ask yourselves when writing this. Is my killer mortal 
or immortal? Do I want to play with the supernatural elements or do I want it to be someone who simply snapped? Another question you have to ask yourself, what is the killer's motive and connection to the final girl? You don't want it to be too obvious, but you need it to be believable. And please don't limit yourself to making it a male killer. Women are just as capable and if not more capable in those roles. So explore that alternative. Perfect examples, Laurie Metcalf Scream 2, Emma Roberts Scream 4. We're able to get rid of blood every month, easily. Believe it, we can be killers. Uh, y'all can get away with it. I am sure of it. That's exactly why I say explore that option. Don't limit it to just one gender. You have a lot of options and a lot of genders to play with. Come on. Make, make more female villains so that we can go good for her. Exactly. We need more good for her universe. We need more, more people. It's just in a sense, we, we just explore that the male characters are the ones that are the villains in the slasher film yeah because but, for so long there have been so many films where the men mm-hmm. were the killers but also i think what also makes for a compelling villain is the reason why they're doing it that's exactly. where you motive. have the op- yeah. the, uh, exactly the motive that's where you have all this room to play with you know make the audience kind of question their moral compass in a way make them feel obviously like just kind of i think what makes like a strong villain is when you kind of see the reasoning why you understand why they're doing it again on a very recent example shang chi where you go understand yeah you go I don't agree exactly with what you're but doing, I but it. I totally get where you're coming from. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Another example, Killmonger. I love how I was going to bring in an example from the MCU too, but then I thought they're not slasher films, but since we're already here, I think my favorite one is, yes, Killmonger, but I think we also underestimate um, Vulture from Spider-Man. Yes. Because he just wanted to provide for his family and for other people that were being unjustly unemployed. But yeah, see, those are those are very strong villains. And what makes them strong is the reason why. So if you're going to make a slasher film, stop with the whole, oh, I was bullied in high school. I'm going to kill everyone who bullied me. Been there, done that. So Dear Evan Hansen is not a good reason. No, it's my 13th reason. <laughs> <laughs> so but... I th- there's so, ma- so much to play with in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, motive. And even yeah. if you want to go with, you know, a motive that has been done before, try to make it so that it impacts the audience more. Again, make them for a moment question their moral compass. And that's what, in my opinion, makes for a really great villain because my favorite villains are the ones that do exactly that. Also, in slasher films, mostly the villains, in a way, they hide their they hide their appearance so when it comes to you know detecting who is the villain there's always a certain line of okay how much information do i have to give out because again if a villain it's out of nowhere like oh he is the killer but it doesn't work that way it doesn't make it believable so you have to like at least give a little bit of hints to show like oh okay it makes sense 100% agree and 
was going to mention is one of the reasons why Laurie Metcalf's Mrs. Loomis worked so well, not only because it was a tribute to Friday the 13th with Mrs. Voorhees, but you also understand her motive. She was getting back at Sydney because she took away her son. Granted, her son was a psychopath, but we don't have to ignore it. We don't have to mention that. In this case, the mom was getting back because she lost her son. And a lot of moms under can understand her snapping because you lost your child. You never want to outlive your child. So that was a motive that at its time was very advanced and very much like, whoa, I didn't think of this person as a possibility. That's why the twist works so well. Exactly. That's a good motive. Because again, any parent who watches that would be like, yeah, it was a good reveal. It was a good motive. And also, you know, with Emma Roberts in the fourth one, Again, I did criticize that my one of the problems that I had with Scream is that none of the killer reveals surprised me at all. But what made them good were the motives. Yeah, Jill actually flipped the script on the Billy Loomis case and went for the boyfriend, which was smart and had the motive to go. You fucked me over, but I'm going to get you back because you're going to the one be framed and I'm going to get my revenge. You just don't know it yet. Mm hmm. It was a smart play on something we've seen before, like you mentioned, but can be just as effective if you take the right approach to it. So we're going to move on. The next part that you have to ask yourself when making your killer, how does your killer communicate with the main characters? Do they leave these creepy signs Do like it says, I know what you did last summer. Do they verbally communicate with a voice modifier? so it doesn't know it's you. In this new generation, you can ask, are they texting the victim, which you're seeing in the new screen trailer? Mm -hmm. You have to ask yourself, are they going to go for a more advanced technological way? Are they going to stick to a more traditional method? You have to think of those things because once you do, you're going to realize that you can be very effective when the killer is threatening the potential victim. You just need to make sure you choose the right approach. But you have a lot of range to play with that. You have a lot of ways that you can experiment with that. So that's a great thing to hold on to. Next up, the killer's murder weapon. Butcher knife, chainsaw, machete, razor hand, hook for a hand, bowie knife. There are many options for a killer to choose, and consistency is key, especially if you're doing a first film. Now, you can up the ante later and choose to go another route. But just as the murder weapon is important to associate, so is how they use it. Your kills have to be impressive, but believable. Use the elements provided in the story setting to your advantage. Perfect example, Fear Street Part 1, Bread Slicer. Not, no one saw it coming. It's creative. It's unexpected. No one expected a teenager to go through that. They went for it. It's perfect for the scene setting. I don't love to see it. But when you think about creativity and what was around them, it was better than using a knife because it kept you on your chosen going, I wasn't expecting that. It was gross. But I remember it. So that gives you points for creativity. Definitely wasn't expecting it. <laughs> no. Also, Side note, re- she deserved better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She was someone who I felt another argument can be made. Mm-hmm. She should have survived. Yes. Yeah. Maybe not the final girl, but she could have survived. Another argument we'll bring up later is Tatum. 
who could have survived and saved for yeah. the next film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're going to talk about why sometimes you can't do that. Now, another film we saw recently was 2021 Candyman. The bathroom scene and the scene with the exhibit after it closed when they used the mirror to show what was happening with Candyman. Mm-hmm. Those scenes worked because of not only how the camera showed you what was going on, but we all know the scene of Candyman in the mirror. You changed it up. You gave us something new. You gave us something different. Bravo to Nia da Costa. With the exhibit, I didn't think they were going to do that in the mirror of the exhibit. And it made it so real that it could just be any mirror at any time. That was smart. That kill was creative. Sure, the hook on the hand, we've seen it before. But it's how you got there. Sometimes that's what matters. How you get to the kill and what you do. I don't know. To me, I don't feel that you need to be creative with your kills. Because again, there's a very fine line between slasher and torture porn. I'm not saying go torture. But I can see how sometimes a basic kill will work. But if you want your film to be impactful, you need at least two or three three just a couple of kills that you remember because what the audience is going to remember are those moments that impact them anyone could technically take the knife in the movie stab them that's it yeah because that's what i'm getting at going back to the to the scene in Candyman, like in the bathroom scene it it also helped as a form of exposition because it meant that the word of the Candyman is spreading around yeah that's the point that's the point of the scene yeah. yeah, so it worked more as an exposition. So it was a that kill had to be made. You got my point across, Anna. Our minds, they're connected. We love to see it. And thank you for bringing up the identity of Candyman, because that's my final point with the killer. What is your killer's identity? Ghostface, Michael Myers, Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger, Leatherface, Candyman, all have an identity your character can recognize and that the audience can remember. You can use a regular person, fine. But if you are considering, potentially, expanding on this world, you need an identity, I feel, that your audience can remember. The only exception I allow is in the movie Hellfest, which a lot of people hated, but what I loved about it is the ending. Again, spoiler. It bravely uses the twist of making it seem like anyone could have put on that mask, snapped, go on a murder spree, and they got away with it. You got to give your killer a unique persona to make it all the more memorable. And if you don't want to do a persona like Ghostface or all those people, that's fine. But you need to remember that your killer has to have a strong enough motive and that your audience will remember who that is. That's very important. You remember Billy and Sue? You remember Mrs. Loomis and Mickey. You remember mm-hmm. Ghostface. You remember all the killers. You just need to make sure it's strong enough that your audience will go, I recognize that person. That's from this film. And I also think that's why the first scene of Scream is so memorable. Just the way that it was built, just the, like, even the small conversation that the killer had with the victim made us know how he is his personality and just the kill per se like it it was such a like great exposition to the killer and the universe completely agree and you remember that that's what you a lot of people take away from that film 
and we're going to talk a little more about the opening scene. But yes, you're 100% right. But also, I think that you also need to be careful because if you're going to reveal who the killer is, it has to be someone that makes sense. Like, don't reveal this person for the sake of shock value. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Avoid that at all costs. Um, I think they sh- like everyone should watch Pretty Little Liars and not do that. All of the seasons? <laughs> There's like a lot of seasons. Yeah, I stopped yeah, after yeah. five. Oh, yeah. I sat through the whole shit. The point is... You're so brave. Oh, I, reg- I have so many regrets. So I think that you need to be careful with who you choose to reveal up your, as your killer. If you think that the audience is going to guess it, then chances are you're setting up the clues correctly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At least give out some bit of hints throughout the film mm-hmm. so the audience could at least guess. Mm-hmm. Because it just makes it just plain yeah. weird have, if it's out of the blue. Yeah. Have the audience formulate their own theories mm-hmm. and have them at the end be like, I knew it, or darn, I should have known. You yeah, know. And, and that's how they make the movie talk and, pro- and actually promote it. Mm-hmm. Be- because and make it creating more, conspiracy theories. And it. makes it memorable as well. Mm-hmm. And with that, we're wrapping up the character development section and we're going into story structure. Slasher story structure can be summarized as Act 1, story setup, maybe two kills. Act 2, story progression, taunting of your killer, maybe a kill or two depending on how many characters you're playing with and you feel are expendable. Act 3, finale, guaranteed main cast bloodbath, the climax, the big bang. Your audience will always remember how you begin the movie and how you ended it, which is why you always have to stick the landing in these two cases. So. What do you have to consider? Number one, why are these killings happening? Is there a past your setting can provide? Is there a lore from the past that can set up your present as well as provide additional motive for your killer? History can repeat itself on certain occasions, but don't wear it out. Next up, when is this taking place? Present day, past. This will also determine how your killer will communicate with the potential victims. If you use the past, do your research on the era, what was used during that time, Look up outfits. You can look up the homes and their interior designing, which will help you give a better idea on how to build the world. I personally wouldn't exactly play with the future tense unless you're going to add a science fiction aspect like Happy Death Day or Freaky. And Gabriela, you are a sci-fi fan. How would you feel if someone wanted to use the future tense in a slasher film? Do you feel they would need the sci-fi element like Happy Death Day or Freaky? It depends. Like, you can tell a story in a nonlinear way without having to use any science fiction elements. You know, the story could be told out of order with the events being the future, and it's just you're telling it in a nonlinear way. There's no need. There's no need for sci-fi there. But Happy Death Day and Freaky are exceptions because they wanted to do something new with the genre. So they decided to add those elements in it. But again, if you want to mix like the slasher genre with the sci- with science fiction, that's just something completely different. Mixing two genres, there's nothing wrong with that. Right, but a clear grasp, has, like a clear concept and a clear grasp of it should be had. A lot yeah. of times they don't really go for it because it's a risk. I, I said I didn't, but I'm on the fence because yes, I do agree with what you're saying, but I'm also afraid 
that it might be too big of a swing, which is why you really need to consider all of your options when it comes to the time in which you're setting the story. So something you can always think about. You can even disagree with that, do it with my opinion of saying you can't do the future. Go for it. Prove me wrong. That's what I'm getting to. Next question. Where is this taking place? Now, slasher films usually take place small town, suburbs, to add that depth of reality. Do you all feel that if there was, hypothetically, a slasher film in a big city, how, would, how could you face that challenge? Now, you have a lot of problems with how they could escape certain scenarios. How could they avoid so many people without seeing what they do? It might be easier to get caught. How would you, for example, go about that? Because, for example, Gabriela, you're living in a big city right now. Oh, my God. They would get away with it. No one cares. I mean, the perfect example is Candyman. Exactly. <laughs> True. <laughs> no, seriously. Like, cities are so big. And people are focused, are very focused on their own thing. It, just it might feel... help that I haven't gone to New York. Yeah. I mean, you're not saying that New York is like the most dangerous place in the world, oh, no, but for now. you know, as as any other place, it has its it has its pros and its cons, obviously. Right. But there's a lot of people here, and not everyone is going to be paying attention. So it's feasible, I think, and I think it raises the stakes even more because if you have a scene where you know, a killing happens. Like, suddenly a person is killed, like, in the middle of a big group of people. You don't know who it, who it is. You don't... There's so many people, you're not going to be able to identify who did, who did it. So I think setting it in a, in a city as big and as populated as New York raises the stakes even more. Because if you do it in a small town, then, oh, like, you have your list of sus- suspects right there. Because there's, mm-hmm. what, 10 people? For, just for the sake of saying a number, you know. So I think in a big city, it raises the stakes even more. Yeah, I agree. Because, again, but if you do it in a small town, it's the way that it can be played out because it's a small town. It raises the stakes. It's mysterious. People know each other. And they start to, like, you know cause an uproar because maybe the person that you know or lives next to you it is the killer so there's a small moment of hysteria that it makes the film more interesting completely agree and you brought you both brought up great points you all brought up great points so if you want to set a slasher in a big city they just gave you some great ideas you can work with again it's all about approach and how you want to build your world Now that we've moved past the questions, we're going to talk about something we kind of already touched on, which is your opening scene. Now, your opening scene can make or break your film. You should always aim, like we were saying, for the greatness of the first iconic scene from Scream. You introduce your killer in that sense. You set the tone for what's going to happen and what the audience can expect. I just love how Scream has never been able to top the first opening scene. Scream, I always say, Scream both set the bar for itself and screwed itself over yeah, because it's literally. so hard to beat <laughs> that scene. And so many slasher films have tried. None, ha- may- Very few have come close. I can't tell you which ones have right now because I don't remember. But the only one I really think about is Scream. Again, 
where's Drew Barrymore's Oscar for that scene, supporting uh-huh. actress? Overdue. Literally, he, they set the bar so high that you could just leave that scene as a short and it'll be perfect. <laughs> like, the movie's yeah. already great. Literally. But if you just cut the like everything else, it's okay. <laughs> I just would love to have been at the editing room and all of them realize being like, shit. <laughs> We're never gonna do anything better than this. Yeah, and even in the new trailer, like it pays homage to to the first one, but they have to. They have no choice. They, they shot no them. They shot themselves on the foot with this one. They're like, fuck. <laughs> we can't be better than this. Also, quick tip: if you're ever casting a slasher film like that, and you have a really great opening scene like Scream. If you pick someone who is very well known and people will go to see like they did with Scream with Drew Barrymore, it adds to your film. Just a tip. Great thing to think about because like they were saying in the new Scream film, they did pay homage. Watch the trailer if you haven't. In the Scream series, the first episode, they did the same thing with an actress a lot of people were watching for or supposedly watching for. I don't know how many people watched it. I was there for the show. But yes, Opening scene, will make or break your film, go for greatness. Act two, tension is a must, baby. Keep your audience's attention, the blood pumping, and most importantly, engaged. You're setting up the story. You're providing a lore if you have one. And in some scenes, you're going to have, for example, they're going to open a door. You You know they shouldn't. The haunting score is reaching its crescendo, and your audience is already there to find out what's behind the door. The perfect example of tension, in my opinion, is the scene in Scream 2 when Hallie and Sydney are trying to escape the police car. No, we've all seen Scream 2 here. We know that scene was intense when he first saw it. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it was it's, very well done. Because you, you could tell at any minute that killer was going to wake up. And you wanted to see if they could do it. You were on your toes because you didn't know what was going to happen. That's one of the greatest things with tension. I just got anxiety again. (laughs) Remembering. Exactly. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You're supposed to. That's the point. A really good slasher film can make you feel that way. And even a film which I didn't like, but Gabriela loved. The Invisible Man. I had anxiety so many times throughout that film. It was great. (laughs) It was great. It was great. And while I didn't like it, I can admit. They did what they had to to get me scared, to make me anxious, and to realize this is a horror film stepping it up. So step up the tension. You can do it. Also, play with your audience. Don't play for them. Play with them. The element of cat and mouse is very important in our next topic, chase scenes. It makes them wonder if the predator will catch their prey or will they nearly escape leading to a bigger scene it's taunting your audience it's teasing them it's leaving them wanting more it's the yearning darling you know what you're going for and speaking of chase scenes please include more than one in a film a couple of slasher films that i've seen don't have as many chase scenes and they're not always as well written as they should take your time with it don't go too long but give me enough that it was an adrenaline ride. You have a killer playing psychological mind games on these characters who are going to be traumatized. Let the killer play. 
audiences, I feel, love a chase scene. And the queen of being chased, who we've mentioned before, Sarah Michelle Yeller. Hence why I sent the clips from I Know What You Did Last Summer to the group and Scream 2. The way she embodies the characters. She's an icon. She's a legend. And she (laughs) is the moment. Now, come on now. Because the way she embodies the characters and gets you to care about what happens to them, even if she's a supporting character, it's fantastic. She channels, she can channel an innocence with her character, knowing she needs to outrun this killer or else it's over for her. You can tell that she's giving it her all. And you can tell that's how the character was written. And with the story after act two, we get to the final act, the bloodbath. You decide who dies and how they die. How your killer will reveal themselves to the final girl. And this is going to be possibly controversial, but don't let too many characters survive. It makes your killer look weak unless you have a lot of characters, which may not be a positive because too many characters means you have to focus on too many of them. And I'm going to lose track. Go for the pain with your audience, like Tatum and Scream, the best friend who you grow to love who dies a tragic death. Someone could die at every turn in a horror movie. Why? Because to quote Noah from the Scream TV series, you root for them. You love them. So when they are brutally murdered, it hurts. Your killer is looking to hurt your final girl and play with them psychologically. Depending on how vicious you want them to be will determine who gets to make it to the end where the sirens arrive and the bodies are collected and tagged. We've mentioned Tatum. We've mentioned Randy, bold choices who hurt Sydney and even our audiences. That's why it's important to create your character, give them dimension, make the audience care for them. That way, when you decide what to do with their fate, it's impactful. And for the killer reveal, we touched on this a little bit, but to give you a quick overview, you've already picked your killer. You're confident they were the right person to wear the mask. Your reveal needs to either address them as normal people who snapped, or if you go with the supernatural element, how they are a supernatural entity. If they are normal people, like Gabriela, Anna, and I have said, even Josie, too, make sure their motive is strong. And if you want to add a little razzle-dazzle, add a little social commentary. In Scream 2, Mickey was ready to blame the movies in his court case. The violence in cinema creates killers, an argument that at that time was being used in real time. A little social commentary gets the audience to think, puts them in a real-world scenario. That's if you want to go for that. It's up to you. You have the free range to explore that. And finally, a killer wants their legacy to live on. Scream 4, we've mentioned Jill Roberts. She wanted her 15 minutes of fame that her, that Sydney got. She and Charlie recorded the murders, so their work would be posted on the internet and live on forever. Broadcasting the murders meant to ki- for their work to live on in infamy. A killer reveal will literally make the audiences love your movie, like it, or hate it. Because how many times have we been disappointed with a killer reveal? Look at uh, Gabriela was talking about it. Pretty Little Liars. Oh, she went through all those seasons. And she wasn't even satisfied. If Which there's is anyone the out there that was satisfied with the ending of Pretty Little Liars, we need to talk. DM her. Talk to her. DM me. Explain to her I, what I you're feeling. To... Exactly. <laughs> and that's why, as a writer, it's important to stick the landing with your beginning and your end. Because everyone remembers how you start a movie and how you end it. So work on the killer reveals. 
everything we said can apply. Don't bring Bob the mailman. Bring someone who we're already accustomed to. Oh, that would be funny. Bob the mailman. Oh, it would be hysterical if Bob the mailman just snapped. <laughs> but anyway, we're going to move on. <laughs> so we're going to wrap up this episode. This has been a very great conversation. I've given you a lot of great tips. But where we have to leave you off with is don't rely on a sequel. If you're going to write a slasher film, set up a great first film that is open to possibly getting a second installment. A sequel is never guaranteed these days, so don't rely on one. Audiences can actually be very hot and cold with slasher films. So set up your pieces nicely, knock them down in an exciting way, and if they love it, and think about what can be reinvented. How will you push the envelope? And remember that adaptation of situations will be necessary. If you go for a sequel, you'll be lucky if you do. It's great that if you can, up the ante. Everything you do in your first film, you already got to know you can top it. Yeah. So that's why I like um, Scream 2 and how it (laughs) criticizes sequels. And it's a sequel. And then my boy Randy even talked about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. The sequel rules. Mm-hmm. R.I.P. Randy. R.I.P. Randy. Look, Scream is a very meta film. Mm-hmm. It's an iconic film. It does a lot. It was a great time. I've loved ta- we've loved talking to all of you. <laughs> and we'll be wrapping up. Because that's all for today's episode. We'd like to thank you for listening and to give a shout out to all the kind people sending love our way. If you'd like to keep up with us, make sure to follow us at Film Posers on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and Facebook. Where can they find you, Posers? You can find me on Twitter at Gabby underscore Burgos 27 and on Letterboxd at Gabby Cristina. You can find me on Instagram and on Twitter as Anna underscore Sophia 53 and on Letterboxd as Anna underscore Sophia. And you can find me on Twitter and on Letterboxd at Leading Mohicans. And you can find me at the Josie Marie on Twitter and Letterboxd. Again, thank you for listening. And remember, we're all film posers. Bye. Bye. Bye.